to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is John Kiriakou, and I'm here in the studio with my co-host, Michelle Witte. Get ready to go against the grain. And as always, there is a lot to talk about today. First of all, we have a terrific lineup of guests. We have Aaron Good, who is always one of the most thoughtful and analytic people that we engage with on issues of, of the media. We have KJ No, one of the country's leading experts uh, on Asia and Asian analysis. We have the great Ajamu Baraka, who's going to talk to us about politics and about South America, and Anthony Omeni, who's going to join the show. He's been on a couple of times. Yeah. I, yeah. Anthony's going to be great, too. But before we get to our guests, there's a lot going on around the world. Um, I'm sure many of you have already seen the news of this mass killing at a daycare uh, center in Thailand. It's sickening. At least 27 of the dead are children, or 26 of the dead are children. So far, at least 31 people are dead. Um, But they caught this gunman. He turns out to be a former police officer. Uh, They don't know why he did it. And gun violence is unusual in Thailand. It's not unheard of. There was a mass shooting two years ago that resulted in 30-something dead as well. Uh, But it's a developing story, I'm sure. We're going to learn more about it in the coming hours. Uh, My friend Jeannie, who is a loyal listener, uh, and thank you for that, Jeannie, sent me a text today that is deeply disturbing. She sent it this morning, and I'm going to find it for you. It's a tweet. Uh, A tweet uh, saying, my sister, this is not Jeannie's sister, this is the tweeter's sister. My sister works in the health field. We grew up in Fort Myers. She still lives there. The medical examiner's office is full. It's not a hundred dead. It's thousands. From Pine Island, Sanibel, and Fort Myers Beach, this is not being properly reported. Now, we don't have any way to confirm that, of course. Although yesterday, authorities in Southwest Florida said that they're having to find bodies by cleaning up the debris. There, there were people, a lot of people who didn't evacuate because the, the state's authorities didn't realize that the storm was going to hook that far south. And so rather than evacuate, people hunkered down. Well, their houses collapsed on them. And the only way to get to the dead or the injured is to clean up the debris one layer at a time. This is already the deadliest storm in Florida since 1935. It looks like it's poised to become the deadliest storm in Florida ever. Um, I hope this isn't true, but, yeah. but we'll see in the coming days and weeks as, um, as rescuers and cleanup uh, officials. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're still looking. Yeah. There's still places that are flooded. They're still looking through debris. Yeah, it is. It is horrible. I hope it's not true as well. It is but- horrible. They are looking for the reports that we have of the the known death toll right now also show that most people died from drowning. Drowning. Which is, right. again, to show that this is what this article will tell you. This is what uh, our meteorologist guests will tell you. It is not. I mean, the, the winds that hurricanes bring can be very destructive, but it is the water that is most likely to to kill you. And to damage your property. And this storm surge is not something to be toyed with. No, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, and this is something that's consistently underestimated by people. When, when, when weather uh, meteorologists and weather people tell us about storm surge, we, we kind of blow it off, you know. Uh, 
but it's the storm surge, like you say, that's going to kill you. I also have to say, I really, uh, I don't say this very often because I think politics is interesting and looking at these meetings is is interesting, but I don't like this sort of uh, battle to, you know, wish wish to see that DeSantis did a bad job. No, no, no. Or on either no, side, right? I agree. Either to wish to see that he did a good job and be gloating like, oh, they're, you know, uh, libs wanting the death right. toll to rise so they can point the finger at DeSantis versus yeah. the other side. Like, I really think that um, it, hurricanes are not as clear cut a case as some other weather phenomena in, in terms of their connection to climate change and their sort of direct connection to policies by one party or another like right. hurricanes come through florida sure there are there are trends that are exacerbated a bit but it's not like i don't know it, it, there are some other phenomena that i think are more directly related drought mm-hmm. uh you know the kinds sure. of flash and so this is just really like hey man i i do think i don't know do you remember- I, I, I don't i don't want to see I, I don't see any catastrophic failures here yeah. as we said we talked yesterday should Lee County have issued those evacuation orders sooner? Uh, I think the conclusion is going to ultimately be probably. Probably they should. Probably they should have read these warnings differently. Maybe these warnings should have been communicated differently as per the conversation we had with our uh, guest, Denise Isaac, yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, li- I don't like seeing this stuff being politicized, really. Right. Do you remember Haley Barber? And also, I will say, I I don't think, you know, I I didn't see anybody standing up and saying, don't worry about this storm. We can handle it. You know, I never saw it. If I had seen officials doing that, then go for it. But But that's not what I saw. Uh, On the contrary, they said before, this storm is a monster. Get in your car and get out. Yeah. Um, Haley Barber Mm -hmm. was a was a Republican uh, campaign uh, official. He ran the Bob Dole campaign for president in 1996. Uh, He was the head of the Republican National Committee, and then he went on to become the governor of Mississippi. Uh, He was a very, when he was in politics, he was a very polarizing figure. But when Hurricane Katrina came, uh, the guy did everything right. And where there were other areas, especially around New Orleans and just north, that were devastated because they didn't evacuate in time. Mississippians did evacuate in time. So whether or not you like Haley Barber's politics was irrelevant at that point. The guy did a good job. Yeah. And I think we're all hoping for whoever is in charge in a place like Florida, Ron DeSantis or or Louisiana or wherever these storms hit, the Carolinas, we want them to do a good job. Yeah. Because this loss of life is utterly unnecessary. Yeah. And not something worth, you know, the the other, well, I don't know. Now now we're just maybe indulging in uh, the kinds of stuff that is uh, niche squabbling that doesn't really deserve sure. to be um, exaggerated. But, you know, I don't, I also don't think you can celebrate the loss of life among some populations because you don't like the way they think either, yeah, you know. That's right. But I haven't seen a lot of that, so I'm not going to invent that. You highlighted for me um, a story that I missed. Mm. Um about qualified immunity. Oh, you know? yeah. How sad is oh, this? this, is, this I mean, is ridiculous. Listen to this. This is from the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court declined to hear yesterday a case where an armed homeowner was shot and killed on his own property by police after they went to the wrong house. So here's, here's what it is. It says, this case involves an innocent homeowner who was shot and killed by a sheriff's deputy after he and other deputies went to the wrong residence because of an imprecise dispatcher's direction given 
by the 911 operator. The officers in dark uniforms arrived on the scene in stealth mode in the middle of the night with only minimal lighting from their flashlights. Awakened by their dogs barking and seeing lights outside, Mr. Powell, the victim, with his wife walking beside him, exited the house believing that a prowler was outside. Mr. Powell, a veteran, had a pistol in his right hand. As they slowly exited the house from the garage and onto the driveway, over 17 seconds passed, during which time Mr. Powell's pistol was pointed down at the ground and no aggressive threats or movements were made. Yet, no officers identified themselves, gave any commands, or said anything as the Powells exited the house. Unaware of the officer's presence, as Mr. Powell stopped in the driveway, he began to raise his right arm when he was shot and killed by Officer Snook. It's so sad. And again, this they didn't take this up because there's nothing really to... Uh, no, you the know, Supreme I, Court... They said cops get qualified immunity. You're allowed to do this. So why should it. we revisit this question? Yeah. Which is just... Just terrible. And this is also what happens when, I mean, you know, this is the other side of the coin of of wanting to make gun ownership uh, more widespread is then you are uh, credibly, you can be credibly accused of being more of a threat to cops. Yes. Who might be hiding in the dark in silence around your house. You know, if he hadn't had a gun, maybe they wouldn't have shot him, which is not to place the blame on him, but just say, if you're going to have these, you know, uh, hair trigger cops running around. Yes. That just makes the mix more volatile. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's horrifying. You know, I, was, I was in prison with a guy who was a, a drug dealer, right? Uh, and it was strictly business for him. He had a meth operation in his garage. So the FBI and the DEA raided his home one morning at five o'clock in the morning. It was a no-knock warrant. They never identified themselves. They thought that their house was being invaded by a rival, you know, drug gang. And so his wife grabbed a gun out of the, uh, the night table and from the top of the stairs shot at the first person through the door, which happened to be an FBI agent. And she killed him again. They never identified themselves. So both. This guy and the wife were arrested and charged with a myriad of felonies. Uh, He was able to do some of her time. He ended up getting 30 years in prison and she got 20 years in prison. You shoot someone who comes into your house and doesn't identify themselves and seems to be heavily armed. Exactly. And that was the only thing that saved them from the death penalty. So this this whole qualified immunity, no-knock warrants... This, this whole thing has to be revisited. It's the Supreme Court that screwed this up in the first place mm-hmm. several years ago when, when they ruled that qualified immunity it, yeah. Yeah, was, was a thing, and they confirmed it. And so now we find ourselves in these situations where, where these injustices take place and there's no recourse. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty horrible. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we get to our first guest? We can take a short break, uh, but my God, there's just so much out there. Yeah, there is. Um, to talk we about. We talked it's, about this possible deal between Israel and Lebanon yes. on, uh, you know, establishing their maritime yeah. border. It looks like uh, Israel has rejected Lebanon's comments on the draft agreement. Mm. Uh, and so it looks like we might be back to the drawing board on that one. Um, 
but also, you know, I imagine there's some motivation there to to come to an agreement so that you can get at some of the gas in that sea that everybody is clamoring for. Yeah, that's right. Between Cyprus, Israel and Lebanon, there's there's enough natural gas under the water to last for a thousand years. The other thing uh, that I think is probably worth mentioning is where this gas is going to go, you know, because it is Europe that has now uh, cut itself off from its, uh, you know, its supplier and Europe that is going to be demanding it. Europe that's probably going to be able to pay more for it than some other countries and Europe who the United States is really focused on. And in the meantime, uh, Bangladesh was left, you know, half of the country left without power yep. on Tuesday after a, a grid failure. Right. But I think Bangladesh is a big user of of natural gas. It is. Right? And so, you know, is Bangladesh going to be able to to get in there and protect its share of the market when prices keep as prices keep going up and our focus is on helping to I don't know, walk a line between highlighting how uh, Vladimir Putin personally is making Europeans suffer over the winter but also not making that suffering so bad that populations decide actually we don't want any part of this anymore. We want a change of we want a change of our strategy. We want a change of our position, right? Which is a, you know some something of a tightrope. Tight rope. So, I would yeah. agree. Uh, but the focus is going to be on that, not right. on the poorer countries of the world. You know, who one are last thing: lose I, access to their electricity supply. I made a I made a quick trip to Bangladesh in the 1990s, and one of the things that I learned is that 75 percent of the country is 10 feet above sea level or lower. Yeah. Bangladesh is crazy. Going to be as affected as some island nations by oh, yeah. sea level. Yeah. Has. And and the problem is is exacerbated by the fact that the 25% that's mountainous uh is home to killer tribesmen, man-eating wolves, and some of the most poisonous snakes in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's not like when the typhoons come, you can just run up into the mountains you for safety. Killer tribesmen. Yeah. What do you mean? They don't like outsiders. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know, they'll they'll put an arrow through you. Mm. Yep. I'm trying to look at actually how much. Uh, Seventy five of uh, Bangladesh's electricity is produced from gas. Wow. So this was a grid failure, but this is you know d- demand is high, supply mm-hmm. is low, and yeah, are they going to be high on our list of uh, you know countries to take care of when uh, as supplies dwindle? Wow. Well, we're going to take a short break and come back with our first guest. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Gallup organization is out with a new poll, a follow-up of a poll they conducted in 2019 and again last year, looking at the approval ratings among Americans of se- or for seven governmental organizations. Those include the CIA, the FBI, the CDC, the IRS, the EPA, the Department of Homeland Security, and the U.S. Postal Service. After sharp declines in approval last year, the CIA and the FBI surged into positive territory again, with 52% of Americans approving of the job that the CIA is doing and 50% of Americans approving of the FBI. 
That's up from 41% and 44% respectively last year. The New York Times today has a front page article saying that a New York physician and a taxi driver are two of the many people now selling arms to Ukraine. I mean, who would have thought? I, go get it's actually some wholesale easy. arms and sure, then just retail them to Ukraine. I guess this is the process. You got to go buy bubble wrap at Costco and just wrap it all up. Um, it's actually easy and almost completely unregulated to sell arms to Ukraine right now, and more and more Americans are doing it. What's more than that is the government is encouraging them to do it. The Times yesterday published an article quoting unnamed American intelligence officials as saying that they have concluded that it was the Ukrainian government that assassinated Daria Dugina, the daughter of a wealthy supporter and friend, reportedly, of President uh, Putin. The Times also apparently has had a change of heart on Ukraine's Azov Battalion. In July 2015, a Times article called the Azov Battalion, quote, openly neo-Nazi, unquote. But two days ago, the Times called the Azov Battalion a celebrated unit in the Ukrainian military. The Department of Homeland Security has spent $290 million to buy a supply of the drug N-plate which is used to treat acute blood cell injuries resulting from exposure to radiation, like during a nuclear war. I wonder if they know something we don't know. We're going to talk about that. CNN, as you know, is in the midst of a reset with new, more conservative leadership. The schedule has been shuffled. A couple of the big-name hosts were let go. Now we learn that CNN's chief national security correspondent, Jim Sciotto, has been put on leave. The official story is that he was working in Ukraine, and on the way home, he and a producer stopped in Amsterdam, where Shioto fell and sustained a serious injury. He's recovered, but he's still being forced to go on leave. CNN says only that Shioto is off to, quote, take care of a personal matter, unquote. We are joined by Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's also the author of American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey, John. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to have you. And there's so much to ask you uh, about today. Let's start with this new Gallup poll. I have to admit that I was actually surprised by the results. A clear majority of Americans approve of the job that the CIA and the FBI are doing. What do you think this is based on? Is this just anecdotal stuff that people pick up here and there in the news, or is it something deeper than that? I can't help but to think that the FBI and the CIA um, propagandizing the American people might be playing a role in these numbers. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, of course they have their own um, PR, you know, uh, elements within them that they that promote the you know the righteousness of the of the two secret services really the the secret police of the fbi or the domestic secret police and then there's the international secret police that's the cia which is the you know the secret police of, of american capitalism basically and uh, it's it would it's, it would be hard to figure out why they would be um more popular now than last year right. except that I think that with in the, the there's a hard line opposition maybe to these parties or unfavorable you know views held in the population by people who are um, pro Trump you know maybe the people who are like yeah the deep state's getting Trump and the CIA and the FBI so the, I imagine those people yeah. are probably in a similar situation to a year ago perhaps you have a little bit of change in the uh, it, outside of those circles like perhaps the stuff with Trump is like. 
maybe winning over more liberals who are anti who are anti-Trump. That, that oh, could just very well be that, it. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. That's true. I would guess that among there are liberals who were inclined to, for a moment, look unfavorably on the FBI uh, following, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 and 2021. Uh, But now, you know, we have the noble FBI going after white supremacist groups. So now they're the good guys. And we have the noble noble CIA enabling uh, plucky, plucky little Ukraine to that was came out a little more mean spirited than I actually needed it to be. But, you know, the noble CIA helping to defeat permanent enemy uh, Russia overseas. Right. So I would suspect, yeah, the big shift is is liberals coming back to the embrace of law enforcement Adam, Adam in these liberals. troubled times. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, let me add something, too. I, th- I think we shouldn't underestimate the effect that um, the CIA's work with Hollywood studios has too. everything that comes out of. Hollywood, whether it's it's feature films or TV series uh, that has anything to do with intelligence, is pro-CIA. Literally everything. Now, the FBI has been doing this since the 50s, and they've been doing it very well. The CIA was a little bit late to the game, but, I mean, it's almost impossible to find an anti-CIA or, or a film that questions the CIA coming out of Hollywood. Yeah, I haven't seen anything in recent years that really gets at the heart of the CIA and and what it is. Usually, if there's a a film that has some bad actors in the CIA, almost invariably, they are films like uh, The Recruit, where there's somebody in the CIA doing something bad, and then eventually the hierarchy uh, intervenes and discovers what the bad guy is doing, and then he is like brought to justice. Usually it's a he. And uh, so this is like one of their tropes is like, this is, I think, a way of putting out, uh, stories out there that like point to the scandals of the CIA, but then ultimately reaffirm the CIA as a good institution. Um, it, 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 the reason I think for their continued popularity or the fact that they can be, uh, you know, still enjoying some support in the public is, and the reason that the media in Hollywood would be favorable to them is more than just their own outreach efforts and, and efforts to manipulate the, the public. I think that the fundamental issue is, what is the FBI? What is the CIA? They're the secret police, right? But who does a secret police serve in a, in a supposedly open society? Why do you need a secret police? Yeah. And why do they go after people like, uh, you know, Martin Luther King and uh, leftists in general, because they are the, the secret police of the establishment. And this, that, that means that they essentially serve the same people that own all the networks, that own all the Hollywood studios. And they do that domestically by going against uh, especially leftists historically. Um, and then internationally, they are the CIA is capitalism's invisible army. And so these guys that own, if you're rich enough to own a movie studio, you're probably rich enough to own shares of an oil of oil interests in other countries uh you know fruit plantations whatever sure. it's just it's all it's all part of um basically capitalism and so the it's it's hard to expend the politicians themselves are all funded by these same interests so yeah. you can't expect the media or the political class to be uh, effective in reining these people in, uh, especially as we've become less and less democratic and more and more a uh, plutonomy, uh, you know, a, a, a very highly stratified society where the wealthy That's have uh, enormous amounts of, of, is, of influence and control over everything. It is one of those things that is uh, on simultaneously extremely obvious and yet also uh, 
rare, rarely contemplated, right? Yes. Everything that comes out of Agreed. Hollywood is coming straight from one of the biggest businesses in the United States and coming from uh, some of the wealthiest individuals in the United States. Everything, everything that you see. So yes. yeah, why would why would they be challenging uh, these entities that protect their core interests? Yes. Yeah. Let me ask you a, another question, Aaron. Apparently, it's it's easy, even patriotic, to sell weapons to Ukraine right now. And literally anybody can do it. There's almost no federal oversight. The government encourages it. And there's a lot of money to be made. Why have a policy like this? Why no oversight? And do you think perhaps Taiwan is next? We're just going to have American citizens uh, just uh, shipping weapons to uh, Taiwan? I mean, the Taiwan thing is they're even more in an exposed position. I think if the invasion were to actually start in Taiwan, there's there's not going to be you're not going to be looking at a map and saying like, oh, the the Chinese have taken this and this, but they're still holding out. Like it's even though it's a, a mountainous country, the, the Chinese, if they were to go into Taiwan, they would go in in force, I believe. And that would be it. There would it wouldn't be this long drawn out thing. But the, it may be a, a place where there's conflict. I mean, it seems like the U.S. wants there to be some kind of conflict. Uh, perhaps they figure if there's something now that happens now, it's better than later when China is going to be even more powerful. Right. Um, I can't figure out what the thinking is behind the policies with Ukraine. Ex- why they would be so careless about this when it can really come back to bite them. And it almost certainly seems like it's going to. If this war, if, if humanity is still around once the dust settles here, you're going to have a Ukraine with uh, that is no longer in possession of its eastern uh, territories with where the majority, the vast majority of the population is Russian speaking and loyal to, uh, you know, in the past loyal to, pol- to Ukrainian politicians who were pro-Russian. Uh, those won't be there anymore, and you will have this uh, rump state uh, that is right-wing banderists uh, and other, you know, sort of yeah. uh, fascist, Nazi-adjacent people. I'm not saying that they're all Nazis, but the core of Ukrainian nationalism is a, you know, is influenced by sort of pro-Nazi currents in history. And now they're going to have lots of like rocket launchers and uh, you know right. all sorts of advanced military equipment. And this is similar to what happened in Europe with after the Cold War, after World War II, you had Gladio, which was really arming yeah. uh, similar right-wing elements uh, in order to carry out terror attacks that would often get blamed on the left. I don't know that that will be exactly the blueprint, but the, the point is you're going to have uh, a right-wing force that is so right now under NATO's thumb. Uh, acting at, and to be able to create mayhem, you know, uh, on command if they want. And it's because it's been so sloppy, it's going to be very deniable for the U.S. Whatever happens, you can always be like, like the, you could always use the blowback excuse, which may or may not be true in individual cases going forward. So it's extremely reckless and dangerous. And uh, I don't, you know, perhaps the thinking is similar to Gladio that if things go badly in Europe or if there's problems because of this, it ends up just strengthening the state and the regime because people turn to the regime for protection. So perhaps there's some kind of logic there behind that, or maybe it's just greed and profiteering over weapon sales. It's hard to say. I also wanted to ask you about the assassination of Daria Dugina. It's unusual for the CIA to come out even anonymously and, uh, and tell the media, uh, we didn't do it. They even added that, had they known about this hit in, in advance, they would have advised against it. 
Why leak something like this? Is this a message to the Russians to to try to ensure that the situation's not further inflamed? Or is this propaganda? Yeah, good question. Uh, perhaps it is potentially a way to say to the Russians, you know, don't try uh, to, please don't go for kind of retaliatory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, responses. Or maybe it is a way to put something out there that, is uh, sowing more doubt in the public about the worthiness of the Ukrainian regime in the event that the U.S. eventually has to kind of abandon it in some way, which, to be honest, seems like the only sensible thing to do. I, I think it's been things have been building up to this point. Russia is about to introduce hundreds of thousands of more people into this theater here. I don't see how the Ukrainians can really win in the long run without triggering some kind of, uh, you know, response from Russia that could would potentially be nuclear. So they need to uh, they need to walk away from this regime. They should negotiate immediately uh, to, to end this conflict because it really can't. I don't see how it can be moved back in a positive direction for for Ukraine uh, and the U.S. So, you know, what what is maybe maybe this is a way of and you've seen a, some more critical reports of Zelensky leak, you know dribbling out in recent months i mean it, these things are it, it's hard to figure out if there is a a big strategy here but for the for the us side it just seems like they want they would like to be able to walk away from this a little bit and so because they have to and yet it's going it, to you know they're they're stuck between they're they're in the horns of a dilemma here as far as how to go forward so things like this, it makes me wonder about what if the U.S. is is actually trying to tarnish the halo that they've constructed for Zelensky and the Ukrainian regime or what the plan is exactly, uh, because this was a very pointlessly, uh, gratuitously violent assassination. Uh, well, it was a it wasn't even an assassination. It was manslaughter, really, yeah, because they was. were likely You're trying right. to get Dugan. And he's not even that important no. of a figure. Like, so this is it's it's really baffling why they would do that. Maybe that's part of why the CIA did it is because they're actually unhappy that they would do something so stupid uh, uh, about it, and they wanted to admonish them a little bit. I don't know. I hear so frequently from friends of mine that the Azov Battalion is this heroic organization where people are laying down their lives to fight the advancing Russians. But the the Azov Battalion has a long history of Nazi and neo-Nazi influence from its founding. That's being ignored right now. And the likes of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and CNN are, are again lauding this organization. How does the media square these very two, these two very, I should say, different positions? Either the Azov Battalion is Nazi or it's not Nazi. Why pretend that it's not? Yeah, good question. I don't know why they don't just ignore it. It's very strange that they put this story out there. Uh, you, I guess it's for liberals, or maybe it's a way to kind of reverse what they already put out there. So it's like it becomes the latest thing on Ukraine and how Ukrainian it's humanizing these uh, people who yeah. are humans. But you know, the Nazis were humans too. Right. Um, and so it's it's very strange. I, I find that also confusing as to why the the Times would would say would do things like this, put this out there. They were a group that was affiliated. Well, they use Nazi like iconography on you know every time it seems like every time Zelensky goes out in public, or there's uh, somebody behind them with some kind of Nazi emblem or insignia on their uniform. All the time. Yeah, all the time. And uh, it, this this is of a piece. I I mean I think you have to go back and. 
in a way, look at what Nazism was and look at what happened to it. The Nazis and the Japanese were the anti the Axis pact, you know, the Axis powers. This was and the Italians. This was the anti-common turn pact, the anti-communist international pact. The Nazis came to power because the Germans and their backers in, you know, other uh, countries like the U.S. and Britain, they were afraid of a socialist communist takeover of uh, Germany. And so they and they were so worried about this that they backed the people that were the craziest that could act would actually respond forcefully against the left. And that was the Nazis. That's where the Nazis came from. And then when the Nazis were defeated, you had people like Alan Dulles, most famously, uh, orchestrating these rat lines to rescue lots of Nazis uh, and, and enlist them in the U.S. struggle against communism later. So it's really like the U.S. took over management of the Nazi project, yeah. uh, of the anti-communist international. It, it sounds, uh, it may be shocking to people to hear it stated that bluntly, but it, you look at these people like Klaus Barbie and Karl right. Wolf and Reinhard Galen, they should have been executed as war criminals. The CIA sprang them from prison and put them on the payroll to uh, do what they do best, which was kill leftists. And um, so this, this and Ukraine was a place where they they backed a lot of people like this uh, as well, not just in Western Europe. So um, this is a, kind of a, a continuation of that. And um, people don't know this history because we are just, we are given the comic book version of, uh, of history, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the 20th century uh, and World War II and the, and the U.S post-World War II international empire, which we are uh, living through the tail end of right now, it seems. Aaron, the Department of Homeland Security has made this huge purchase of medication to combat radiation sickness. Uh, $290 million worth isn't going to save a whole ton of people in the event of a nuclear war. Uh, What's that? You know, one dose for not even every American. Um, That leads me to think that there is something more to this. Uh, same question. Is this propaganda? Is this a message to the Russians? Why make such a purchase, especially if it's symbolic and then announce it unless you're trying to, you know, influence public opinion? Yes. In, uh, in international relations terms or security studies, this is like called, uh, like signaling, you know, you got to signal your resolve, uh, to your adversary, you know, as far as game theory, calculations go so perhaps it's a way to say like yeah we're taking this we're, we're not going to be cowed by this nuclear uh you know business we're ready to show you that we're going to do this so it's a way to like perhaps uh exercise a deterrent effect on russia it's crazy because it's uh increasing the risk of nuclear war the, the more the u.s does anything to signal that it may use nuclear weapons to defend ukraine which is a, is, is such an insane proposition um, this is this this it, it has the effect of making Russia more worried, or perhaps Russian people or Russian decision makers uh, understand that the U.S. needs to signal this. I don't. I this is it's very dangerous. We should be outraged that the U.S. has not uh, defu- did not defuse this situation earlier. Uh, up to this point, the the fact that Ukraine was a red line for. Uh, Russian elites and for the Russian people in general is was well known and written about in reports. And it's exactly why they went into Ukraine, you know, leading up to the Maidan coup to begin with. So this is they have been extraordinarily reckless here. People like Mir Scheimer uh, laid this all out very clearly and also warned that it was risking nuclear war. And they have been doing this. And the reason is, I believe it's pretty obvious that the Russia, China, 
combo is a un- an unprecedented threat to U.S. hegemony because the U.S. empire has rested upon the fact that there was no countervailing force in it that would allow countries to escape U.S. domination uh, th- for since the end of World War II, by and large, especially the way that decolonialism, you know, decolonization played out. But the rise of China's great economic power and then Russian military power just in its own region uh, to stop U.S. plans is horrifying to U.S. policymakers whose main function is to keep the empire running forever. And so when Russia went into Syria and saved the Syrian uh, government from being destroyed by U.S. Uh, backed uh, jihadis, you know, the U.S. using its sock puppets in the Saudi or in Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf states flooded Syria with these maniacal jihadists. Uh, and then Russia comes in to uh, help save the day. Otherwise, they would have ended up just like Libya. This outraged uh, the U.S. I mean, here you have 400,000 people in Syria killed at least because of this war, but they don't even get the regime change they wanted. And so this is they resolved to try to uh, stick it to Russia and basically to destroy Russia's ability to act as a international as a as an, an actor in the international arena. Can I? And they're hell bent on this, and it's it's terrifying. I want to ask a question, and this just came up. I don't know how I didn't see this yesterday. This is a story in the Intercept, which should yes. inform how we read it. Did you see this, John? Yeah, I sure did. So it's Ken a, Klippenstein and uh, Jim, Jim Risen. James Risen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the thrust of this story is that actually uh, the CIA thought that Russia would conquer Ukraine, would just roll over Ukraine in a couple of days. And they got it really wrong. And they've been trying to take credit ever since. This is in The Intercept. This is anonymously sourced. You know what I mean? So who knows what kind of English they're trying to put on this story. But, you know, maybe the reason it, it, it I think asks us to contemplate if maybe the reason the U.S. has not done a very good job of figuring out how to defuse this is because they did. They expected they didn't expect the war to go on this long. They thought they would just, you know, Provoke Russia into this battle and then be able to set Russia up as a pariah without having to actually engage in a battle for this long. And we've been I don't know. I think it's it's certainly goes against everything that officials have been saying in public from the start of the war. Uh, which is that no, Ukraine can win if we just uh, give them the right stuff, give them the right help. And if we also like all clap our hands and whatever. Um, But, you know, somebody's lying. Uh, Maybe they're lying this interesting novel way. Yeah, it's in the intercept. I'd like to see that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to check it out because my take on this is the way that it has happened. People have said that Russia was turned back from Ukraine you know, almost like it was like how the the Nazis tried to take Moscow. But I don't think that Russia has ever gone into Ukraine with overwhelming force like the Americans would have. And I've heard it. I've heard things in the past that echo what this article is saying, whereas that that the Americans were kind of surprised that the Russians did not immediately knock out all the electricity grid uh, in Ukraine like they did in when the, like the U.S. did when they went into Iraq. And so I, I think that that's I, I want to see what that is saying, because I, I that actually makes some sense to me. If people have been puzzling over this, like, why was the Russian military so seemingly incompetent or why did they not go in with a bigger force? I, I think that one possible explanation is that the Russians have actually been extremely cautious and uh, more conscientious 
about minimizing the destruction to Ukraine writ large than uh, has been the case in any kind of major war like this in recent history or, or you know, last, I, I don't even, it's a very strange thing. Maybe that has wrong-footed the U.S. And that's why we're getting to this position where it's, uh, where they seem to be running out of options. Uh, right. By, by doing this, because this was what Pilger said back in 2014. He said, if Putin falls into the trap and goes and destroys Ukraine, uh, then he will be the pariah that the West needs. Well, he's, he is the pariah by the West because of the PR machine and, and such, and the events are able to be spun this way. But he didn't go in and really wreck Ukraine yet, although that still seems to be in the offing as this war grinds on. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that's that's fascinating and worth looking at. I, that, that I, I think that that's pretty plausible uh, analysis in this, that you, the way you summarize the article. We will leave it there. That was the voice of Aaron Good. He is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's also the author of the excellent book, American Exception, Empire and the Deep State. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be back after a short break. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are getting into now a possible change in U.S. policy toward Taiwan, possible change in North Korean policy toward the United States, and uh, what Republicans are signaling uh, they'll do to position themselves vis-a-vis China if they take over the Congress after the U.S. midterm elections. Joining us for all of these conversations is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist who focuses on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. Thanks for joining us, K.J. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So, uh, as the New York Times puts it, the United States uh, has decided the best policy would be to turn Taiwan into a giant weapons depot. Uh, According to this story, U.S. officials are intensifying efforts to build a giant stockpile of weapons in Taiwan after taking a look at the naval and air force exercises by the Chinese military around the island. And the idea... This has been mentioned before, but the idea is to turn Taiwan into a porcupine to give it the opportunity to defend itself while within the blockade that China would probably launch ahead of any possible invasion. To defend itself while the U.S. and other nations consider whether or not they want to get involved. Um, According to the Times, one problem with this effort is that the U.S. is currently sending all its spare weapons to Ukraine. Um, It is also unclear how China would respond if the U.S. started flooding the island of Taiwan uh, with different types of weapons. And so, you know, I feel like there's a lot to get into here. And the first question I have is how much this policy would differ from past U.S. policy with regard to Taiwan, because we have always sold them weapons uh, and they have always been of a specific nature, right? We're not selling them F-35s. The Times says the U.S. is going to encourage sales of smaller mobile weapon systems and just a lot of them. Uh, And so I wonder how much you think this shift matters and and how China could respond. 
Yeah, this is an important uh, shift. It's been coming for a long time. It's been telegraphed a long time. <clears throat> but just to go over, you know, the, the basic uh, background, the U.S. official policy on Taiwan is the one China policy. That means there's only one China. The PRC is the government of this China and Taiwan is island is a province of China. This policy assures China territorial integrity, sovereignty, and non-interference. And it allows China to envisage peaceful reunification. The Chinese have a policy of peaceful reunification only if peaceful reunification is impossible, made impossible, then are kinetic means being considered. Now, currently, there is the Taiwan Policy Act, which is wending through Congress. Uh, and what that does is it ends the one China policy. It designates China, uh, Taiwan province as a non-NATO ally. It fast-tracks lethal weapons, $6.5 billion worth. It uh, includes mass war gains for interoperability, prepares for massive retaliatory economic warfare against China. And it, it, and it uh, mentions an enduring rotational presence of U.S. troops, i.e., uh, the TPA turns Taiwan Island into a forward base for U.S. empire. Essentially, it is a declaration of war. In that context, what the U.S. is doing is it's adding quills to the porcupine and preparing for asymmetric warfare. And it is one of these ideas is to preposition stocks of arms because Taiwan is a tiny island. It is thousands of miles away from the U.S. It's, it can be reached by jet skis from the mainland China. And China has shown that it can very easily create a cordon sanitaire around the island. And so this possibility of blockade is worrying the United States as it escalates, uh, as it pre pre prepares to escalate a war with China over Taiwan. There are a few things wrong with the New York Times, uh, as usual. Uh, the first thing is that the Taiwanese people want to maintain the status quo. The Taiwanese military, the ROC military, is opposed to independence. And right now, they are probably uh, rehearsing surrender. And Taiwan Island actually only has 14 days of fuel if it is blockaded. So there's some massive miss calculations going on. Ukraine is not Afghanistan, and Taiwan is not Ukraine. And the most likely thing that will happen if war breaks out is that Taiwan Island will be a watery bien bien food for the American empire. I think, I think something that sometimes gets overlooked is, is how small Taiwan is. It's not big. There's not, it's hard to contemplate uh, what kind of fighting would not result just in the total destruction of of chunks of the island, and that would just be sort of vi vicious uh, fighting in like uh, mountainous terrain. It's yeah, it's hard to contemplate. The other thing that I thought was very interesting in this article uh, was a point made by a professor of government at Cornell University named Jessica Chen Weiss, who worked on China policy at the State Department in the past year. Uh, and she says, sure, the porcupine strategy will enhance deterrence. If you, you know, you want to give Taiwan all of these uh, weapons that will make it extremely hard to invade if you don't do what we presume China doesn't want to do, which is just to sort of from the air uh, bomb the island to smithereens. Um, she says, sure, that that will enhance deterrent. 
But taking symbolic steps on Taiwan's diplomatic status does not. She called Joe Biden's recent remarks on Taiwan and the U.S. relationship there. uh, uh, She called them dangerous. uh, And she said the U.S. has to make clear that the U.S. doesn't have a strategic interest in having Taiwan permanently separated from mainland China. And I thought this was interesting because, sure, I think if you if you really intend to help Taiwan maintain its ability to self-govern and maintain its distance from China, you know, giving it, uh, uh, quietly attempting to give it the weapons that will actually help it become an impossible target makes sense. But what you want to do is not draw China's attention to that effort every step of the way. And like, Realistically, I'm not sure how much you could expect China to simply not notice uh, that the U.S. is is giving Taiwan, you know, different kinds of weapons, particular kinds of weapons or whatever. Um, But I think that does make sense. And that really I think the fact that the United States has been so public, that Joe Biden has been so provocative with his statements on Taiwan, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi flying over there. uh, It does make you it should make us question what the United States true goals are. Because if the true goal was helping Taiwan uh, maintain the status quo and giving it the best negotiating position possible with regard uh, to China and unification, you wouldn't be grandstanding like this. You're absolutely correct. There would be no grandstanding. There would be quiet actions, as the TRA already provides for. And you wouldn't telegraph or, uh, you know, get on a podium and, uh, you know, announce what you're doing. So all of this, as I said, is so public, and it's so public because it's designed to be provocative. As I said, you know, the TPA and uh, the uh, Biden's declarations, all of these have to do with transforming or reverting Taiwan Island into a U.S. forward base, which the Chinese cannot tolerate anymore than China, than the U.S. would tolerate Hawaii being turned into a Chinese military outpost with advanced weapons and Chinese troops. So all of this is provocation. And the provocation is tied to the idea, as Elbridge Colby has pointed out in Strategy of Denial, is that the U.S. would like uh, China to engage in war. And then what the U.S. would do is wrong-foot China, uh, delegitimate it, and get the rest of the world to bandwagon and sanction China in hopes that it would uh, replicate uh, Ukraine for uh, China in in the Pacific. As I said before, uh, Taiwan is not Ukraine, and that is a serious miscalculation. I also want to ask a very basic question, which is, is there anything, what is preventing Taiwan from building its own weapons of the type that it would like from the U.S. or that it, you know, buys from the U.S. Because Taiwan is a Taiwan is a, a, a has a technologically advanced economy. You know, makes lots of, of chips and stuff like that. And what it buys from the United States in terms of weaponry is usually a couple of generations old. And so I do wonder if if Taiwan needs these weapons, why hasn't it launched its own arms production industry? What is standing in the way? Well. Primarily because Taiwan's utility to the United States prior to 2018-2019 was as a consumer of U.S. military goods. It's a dependent. It's a client. Why would Taiwan produce its own goods when it's 
key function, one of its key functions, is to consume U.S. goods. Uh, and so, you know, over the, the, the decades, Taiwan has had actually a very small indigenous, uh, you know, military-industrial capacity. It has about 200 small or medium-sized businesses. It has the CISD, which does research. Uh, and then it has some shipyards that build, you know, ships. But primarily, it doesn't build high-tech weapons. It makes rifles and drones, no high-end systems. Uh, and it, uh, it has focused on building its economy <laughs> quite simply because it hasn't really anticipated war with China. This escalation to war, as I pointed out, is being driven by the United States uh, and spearheaded by a quizzling DPP. But, uh, you know, the fundamental contradiction is that Taiwan has, doesn't have raw materials, it's codependent on the U.S., uh, and it really doesn't want to build up its military, at least not until recently. So, you know, this is the current state of affairs, and now they want to shift that 180 degrees, and that is not going to happen. I also want to ask you about North and South Korea following Vice President Kamala Harris's trip there. The headlines were mostly grabbed by North Korea's various missile tests and Kamala Harris's North-South mix-up, and then yesterday, uh, South Korea's missile test accident. But what hasn't gotten as much attention is something that you pointed out to me, which is analysts are saying North Korea has actually undertaken a significant shift uh, in its policy toward the United States. Uh, It started in 2019. And so I wonder if you can tell us what has changed and what those implications are. Yes, this is very, very important, and I think people need to pay attention to this. For decades, North Korea has always tried to normalize relationships with the United States. It has sued for a peace treaty, and it has begged for normal relations with the United States, and it's been rebuffed at every turn. Up to 2019, there was an attempt that North Korea had to kind of bargain away its nuclear program in return for enduring peace on the peninsula and normal relations. They have decided, as far as the experts are seeing it, is that they've essentially given up on this. (laughs) And the key signal that lets us know that's the case is they have declared a nuclear doctrine, which they say that they will never give up their nuclear weapons, that they are a de facto nuclear state, don't even think about it. And the other piece of this declaration is that they've also given themselves the authority to launch a preemptive nuclear strike if they think that it is strategically necessary or if they feel threatened. The key thing that is important in this dynamic is, you know, once again, if we go back a little bit to the theory, um, there's a thing called the offset uh, approach in war doctrine that is How do you equalize uh, forces when there is a tremendous overmatch? And the U.S. is offset against conventional Soviet uh, overmatch in in conventional forces with mass nuclear weapons. The Soviet responded with their own nuclear weapons. The U.S. response to this was precision, cruise missiles, knock out the weapons. This is the second offset. And the third offset against precision is dispersion or swarming or diffusion. North Korea has done the same thing. The U.S. and South Korea have a 
tremendous conventional overmatch against North Korea. North Korea's offset is the first offset. It's a nuclear offset. The U.S. and South Korea have created the second offset, the precision uh, uh, attack against uh, precision decapitation against North Korea through our plan 5015 and South Korea's kill chain. And North Korea's response to this is, again, more diffusion. That is, delegation of launch authority, uh, diffusion of uh, diffusion in space uh, and time. And essentially, they're saying that if we are decapitated, uh, we will attack, uh, we will launch a nuclear attack. KJ, I'm going to stop you there and uh, continue this conversation on the other side of our 1 p.m. break. We're talking to Asia-Pacific scholar KJ No. We're going to pick back up right after this break here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are continuing our conversation with Asia-Pacific scholar K.J. No. Uh, K.J., you've been describing, uh, you know, North Korea's sort of third third step here in, in response to U.S. and South Korean capabilities, which is to uh, set up sort of a dead man switch on its uh, nuclear program. And so what are the, you know, what should, what would a, a sane response be from the U.S. and South Korea to this this escalation that's been building? Uh, response would be to open communication channels and to de-escalate. Uh, and and to cease the continuous, you know, threat inflation, escalation, military exercises. I mean, these are all known factors. North Korea is not a belligerent, dangerous state. It is simply trying to defend itself. It has a military budget which is smaller than the NYPD. It yeah. constitutes a threat to any country except when it is attacked. And if it is attacked, its response is kind of a Samson option. It's a suicidal option. So there are ample opportunities to de-escalate. But the U.S. uses North Korea as a pretext to escalate in the Pacific against China. North Korea is simply, uh, you know, kind of a, a stalking horse in order to escalate war against China. How should we understand uh, the frequency of North Korea's nuclear tests, not nuclear tests, uh, missile tests recently, or even this, uh, what Politico tells me is an unusual incident today in which North Korea flew warplanes near its border with South Korea, uh, causing South Korea to respond by scrambling a a couple dozen jets. Uh, How should we view this, right? I mean, I think, of course, understand for context, you have North Korea and South Korea holding uh, massive military drills regularly uh, on North Korea's doorstep. But uh, what kind of message do you think they're trying to send with these tests? Well, the first uh, thing they're doing is they're simply testing. And remember, the U.S. has what tested 18,000, you know, ballistic missiles. Uh, So North Korea currently is on its 23rd this year. It's a pretty accelerated schedule. But they are doing some testing of their stuff, and they're also showing force. 
That is to say, for example, just very recently and still concurrently happening in Hokkaido, Japan, there is a massive exercise called Resolute Dragon. As soon as one exercise ends, another one begins. So this is between Japan and the United States, along with some Korean Marines and uh, also some Filipino Marines. And this is happening in northern Japan. So the recent launches, uh, the the Hwasam-12 launches were aimed in that direction, just to say, you know, we're watching you, don't get any ideas, uh, you know, we're capable of defending ourselves. And uh, and the same thing, you know, there, there are more exercises coming, and all of these missile launches either are before or right after uh, military exercises that North Korea considers uh, threatening. It's their way of saying, please, we have our means of defending ourselves, please don't get any ideas. And finally, you know, if if North Korea is truly giving up on negotiating with any U.S. administration, uh, I I wonder if you think it will remain on its own in this or if other countries are going to start to follow suit. Right. Because we are we are watching uh, this incredibly drawn out process of renegotiating a nuclear deal deal with Iran, which uh, might result in total disappointment. Absolutely nothing. And I, I wonder if, you know, we should expect to see more nations decide the United States' word isn't worth trying to commit to paper. Well, I think Lavrov had the answer to that when he said that the U.S. is not agreement capable. In North Korea's long history, every time it has signed an agreement with the United States, going all the way back to the 1953 Armistice Agreement, the U.S. has abrogated that agreement, sometimes within days, hours of signing these agreements. I'm talking about the Greed Framework, Six-Party Talks, uh, the armistice itself. And so the North Koreans have drawn their own conclusion and decided that security is the best way of uh, you know, ensuring its continued existence. And it would not be surprising if Iran makes that same decision. Certainly, the abrogation of the JCPOA is a very, very strong signal. And once North Korea and Iran do this, then I can very easily see further bandwagoning by other countries that see that... <coughs> that it's possible, second, that the U.S. is impotent to retaliate, and third, that the U.N. Security Council will uh, uphold and uh, will prevent sanctions. That was Asia-Pacific scholar K.J. Now, K.J., always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Always a pleasure. We're going to take a very quick break here and come back with some more domestic politics, some oil politics. Mm -hmm. We've got a whole lot more to get into and also some DNA politics later in this hour. Uh, But we'll take a short break before that. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. We told you earlier this week that Secretary of State Tony Blinken made a trip to several South American countries to discuss migration. One of those countries was Colombia, which is under new leadership following the election of progressive politicians, President Gustavo Petro and Vice President Francia Marquez. 
Meanwhile, the Biden administration said today that it would seek to ease sanctions against Venezuela, not because it's the right thing to do, but because the administration has seriously underestimated the damage to Democrats' electoral chances in an era of rising oil prices. With yesterday's decision by OPEC Plus to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day, prices already are headed back up just in time for the U.S. midterm elections. And let's talk about those midterm elections. With just 27 days left until the elections, races all across the country are tightening. And that's despite the fact that a majority of Republican nominees for offices at all levels deny that Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election. And a near majority of Republicans say that they will not concede their races if they lose. Because how could they lose? We're joined by Ajamu Baraka. He's the former U.S. vice presidential nominee of the Green Party, and he's the national organizer of Black Alliance for Peace. Welcome back, Ajamu. Good to be back. Thank you. Oh, it's great to have you. Things just seem to get stranger and stranger every time we have you on the show. Let's start with Tony Blinken in Colombia. There's not historically been a huge number of Colombians in the United States, either documented or undocumented. The State Department billed Blinken's trip to South America as one of discussions on migration. So first of all, is this true? And if it is, why go to Colombia? Can you shed any light on what was discussed in these meetings? Well, it, it was a very strange um, um, uh, visit, but it, it had a certain logic. Um, what, what's, what's important, what's interesting about this visit was that there seemed to be a, a slight shift in the attitude of the U.S. toward the new administration. And what do I mean by that? Well, when the inauguration took place, um, the U.S. decided that um, they were going to send uh, Samantha Powell to represent the administration. Now, we all know that Samantha Powell is uh, the head of uh, USAID. Now, that struck many of us is, is very strange. Especially when um, uh, when the inauguration took place in Honduras, uh, the administration sent uh, Kamala Harris to that uh, inauguration. So it seemed like there was a this was a, a, a conscious signal that the new the uh, Biden administration was not too happy with this new administration. But it seems like there's been a slight shift. Uh, Blinken came down. Uh, of course, they were the the main objective there was to have a meeting with uh, with Petro uh, to get a sense of what this administration was really about. But it seems like he came down because they got enough indications that this new administration was not going to attempt to try to duplicate uh, the, what they would define as leftist politics, uh, hard left politics in the region. He was going to be a pragmatic one. Uh, and that there may be some space for continued cooperation with the uh, Biden administration. So they, uh, Blinken came in, they just, they talked. There was an agreement signed between uh, the U.S. Um, and Colombia to address issues related to the consequences of the war as as, as those conditions have impacted uh, 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 Afro, Afro-Colombians and the indigenous. Um, and there's discussion around, you know, the peace process. So it remains to be seen what is going to completely unfold, but clearly there seems to be an area in which uh, at least dialogue is taking place um, and uh, and what this means politically 
uh, between the U.S. and Colombia is that at this point, there's still um, uh, coordination and communication, and they're pretty good allies. Tell us a little bit about the state of relations between Colombia and the United States right now. Gustavo Petro um, is the first, uh, not first, he's the most progressive uh, Colombian president in history. And Francia Marquez is the first ever indigenous woman to be vice president. The U.S. and Colombia have historically close relations, but close relations specifically in defense, in intelligence, and in counter-narcotics. What does the relationship look like now? Is it continuing with that closeness? Well, apparently it, it, it is. Um, of course, there are some, some serious uh, contradictions between the U.S. Um, and the new administration in terms of where the new administration wants to go. Um, so those more uh, tough issues regarding continued access of the U.S. to Colombian bases, uh, what is the meaning of Colombia's uh, special uh, relationship with uh, NATO um, and the U.S.? Uh, these kinds of questions have not really been tackled yet. At least nothing has emerged in public. Uh, so there seems to be a continuation of the relationship. Now, you know, the, the Colombian administration, though, they, have, they want to ensure that there's going to be uh, stability, that there's not going to be any open collaboration between the U.S. Uh, and right-wing forces in Colombia that would try to undermine uh, the agenda of the new administration. They know that they're naive that uh, the uh, U.S. state has very close relations with the uh, Colombian far right. So things continue um, as they uh, have been on the surface. Uh, but again, it remains to be seen what is going to unfold as the administration continues to get its, its, its act together, uh, to have everybody in place, and to begin to pursue its own uh, agenda. Give us your insights into the state of relations between the U.S. and Venezuela. Venezuela last week released seven Americans who had been detained there, while the U.S. released two Venezuelans. They were relatives of Nicolas Maduro's wife. Uh, they were held here in the U.S. on drug charges. Now the U.S. says it will ease sanctions, although Michelle pointed out that there is another uh, announcement from the from the NSC saying, no, 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 we didn't say we were going to ease sanctions. Apparently, this is an ongoing uh, discussion. Um, if there is an easing of sanctions, it's clearly because of the rise in oil prices. But what is what does all this back and forth mean for bilateral relations between the U.S. and Venezuela? Do you see do you see these relations improving? Well, I think that there's some some mutual interests that have to be addressed. Of course, the Venezuelans would like to see the sanctions uh, ease. Uh, they would like to get access again to the international markets uh, to sell their oil. Um, in, a, in, in a more expanded way, uh, the, uh, the the U.S. administration is, um, is uh, still committed to uh, trying to make sure that the Venezuelans are not able to exert the same kind of political pressure that they were able to exert in the region uh, in the past. But the the objective conditions, uh, in particular, moves being made by OPEC, for example, to reduce production. Uh, is providing uh, a bit of, of leverage for the uh, Venezuelans. 
And so, you know, if the U.S. is serious about trying to address the issue of or trying to uh, preempt uh, the rise in prices of oil, uh, they have to seriously look at their relationships with Venezuela and with uh, with Iran. And so there is a uh, a basis for better relations. Um, but again, not because of any change in, in heart, but because of the cold, uh, uh, objectively cold nature of, of politics. Yeah, I think that's right. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about U.S. politics. We're less than a month away from the midterm elections, and I want to start with Georgia, which has been in the news a lot lately. Senator Raphael Warnock is running for a full term against Herschel Walker. My feelings about Walker are clear. Um, I think he's been hit in the head too many times. He can barely string words together to form a coherent sentence. But the Republicans love him because he's a doctrinaire conservative, even if he can't explain why he's a conservative. Uh, Walker took a hit this week with news from the mother of one of his children that he got her pregnant, paid for her abortion, and sent her a get well card. He denies that that ever happened. But now his own son, who is a MAGA hat-wearing, Trump-loving Twitter troll, says that Walker is lying and that he's been a terrible father. Still, the polls show this race as being extremely close, although one outlier poll today uh, has Warnock winning 50 to 38. Give me your thoughts about Georgia, about the politics there, and where the African-American community stands, because pundits seem to agree that with two African-American men running against each other, uh, it's going to be the African-American community that swings this race one way or the other. And this is a this is a mistake that many Democrats make is they underestimate the social conservatism of some African-Americans in the Deep South. What do you think? Well, you know, John, I think that mistake is made. But in this case, um, I don't think that's going to be a, a factor in terms mm. of the African-American community uh, having any real um, love for Herschel Walker. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 only because of what you were saying earlier in terms of, of, the, of the setup for this. That basically, he's, he's almost an embarrassment. Um, it, 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 I think what, what his uh, candidacy uh, represents more so than anything else is the confusion and the internal racism of the Republican Party, believing that a Herschel Walker type could, in fact, be attractive to right. the American community. Good point. There will be some people who would support that. But uh, where the African-American community is right now, uh, the ones who are going to participate, it's going to be largely uh, a majority, of course, behind uh, Warnock. The, the politics in Georgia is, is, is changing, of course. Uh, but uh, the African-American communities and others in that state are not going to be persuaded by these kinds of stunts. And that's what the, the Walker uh, campaign really has been, basically uh, a racist stunt. Amen to that. Moving to Pennsylvania, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is locked in a tight race with Dr. Mehmet Oz. Fetterman has had a consistent lead, but a serious stroke in May has kept him off the campaign trail. Oz has taken advantage of this and of Fetterman's cognitive inability to debate, and the race has tightened, seriously tightened. The latest polls show Fetterman leading 48 to 45, but the race could go either way. Um, In the meantime, this week, Oz said again 
that he would only give up his Turkish citizenship if he wins the race. He's currently a Turkish citizen and is a veteran of the Turkish Special Forces. What do you think about this race? Well, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, interesting one. Um, and it can, as, as you say, it can go both ways. It's really imperative that, that the Democrats uh, demonstrate that they can, in fact, win some of these high, uh, highly contested uh, seats. Um, I think that the messaging in this race has been such that uh, Fetterman, as when he was able to campaign, indicated the, the route that uh, Democrats should go. Uh, with raising, you know, bread and butter issues, uh, and then being uh, 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 confused by the desire on some, on the part of some national uh, Democrat Democratic strategists uh, to make this race a national race in terms of of putting too much emphasis on certain issues. But it's, it's the very fact that uh, Fetterman has not been able to uh, effectively campaign has been a real. A real detriment to the possibilities of the Democrats winning this, but um, Oz is um, a, a, a rising star, uh, even with those contradictions around his uh, Turkish citizenship. Um, and this is really something that's too too close to to call. Yeah, important that that um, uh, Pennsylvania remain with the Democrats if they have any real hope in 2024. Well, I think a tougher race for the Democrats is in Wisconsin right now. The Wisconsin Senate race is getting ugly and Republicans have an onslaught of advertising to cripple Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes in this race against Senator Ron Johnson. The polls have turned. Barnes was leading this race from the very beginning, from the moment that he won the primary for the Democrats. Uh, And Johnson, who is consistently the lowest ranked senator in poll after poll after poll has now pulled ahead. The pundits are not blaming Barnes for this. They're blaming the Democratic National Committee, which has simply urged candidates to run on abortion, abortion, abortion. Um, Wisconsin voters want to talk about more than abortion. Can you see the Democrats squandering a Senate majority just because they insist on running a national campaign? in Wisconsin, rather than allowing Mandela Barnes to tailor his campaign for this specific race? Yes, I do. And it's, 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 it's been, it, this has been an issue with uh, these candidates that will put too much emphasis on the advice that they are receiving from these national strategists. I mean, it, it boils down to this, uh, John. That you have to have a you have to have a campaign that tailors to the the needs of your constituency, and the the polls can suggest that you can take up an issue like abortion. But if you are trying to tap into the the real the real plight of the working class, uh, working people in Wisconsin, you have to address yourself to those kinds of needs. And while abortion is important, access to abortion is important. I think that the Democrats are misreading the, where the mood of the people um, uh, is here in this country. And so, yes, they can they can blow it. Uh, they're going to blow it other places also, because even mm. beyond the, the issue of the, of the races of these, these senatorial seats, what is happening on the local level, the state representatives, the state senators, and we see that the the, the Democrats continue to be to, to face the real possibility of, of losing more seats to the Republicans, so that you have more state legislatures are still being controlled by Republicans, and that number may even increase. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's right. I wanted to ask you, to about what to me is the most confusing race in this cycle. It, well, it's a trio of races, really, in Arizona for governor, senator, and secretary of state. Polls released this morning show the gubernatorial race tied at 49 to 49. Democratic Senator Mark Kelly is ahead in his Senate race, but only 47 to 45. And the secretary of state race is tied 45-45. The secretary of state, of course, puts on state elections. These candidates could not be any more different from one another. Is the Arizona electorate that polarized, do you think? Are we that split across the country where there's almost no middle ground? Do you see Arizona as perhaps emblematic of the country as a whole, or is Arizona just this weird outlier? Well, I think there's something that's pretty weird about Arizona, but I think in, in other ways it does um, they represent what is happening across the country politically. That the the politics and the rhetoric of of the Republican and Democratic parties have been such that there's no middle ground. You either with us or against our sort of politics. And um, yes, this is unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your stance, where we are with the electorate. It's a very dangerous situation because there's a range of, of issues um, and, and potential participants in the electoral process uh, that, that their voices and their interests are not really being addressed. And so you have a, a shrinking electorate making critical decisions that, that, that impact all of us here in this country and really the world. And that's very, very uh, uh, troublesome. Indeed. One last question for you. Ajamu, the polls tell us that Donald Trump is still the top choice by far for president among Republicans in 2024. They also show Trump beating Joe Biden. Um, Importantly, in places like Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, the Democratic strategy seems to be right now to bog Trump so far down in legal trouble that he just simply can't run for president. But what if he does run for president? Do you think he could actually be the Republican nominee in 2024? Well, the, the, the Democrat strategy seems to be down and bogging down, but to try to create the conditions where he will not be able to run. Uh, and I think that's a very dangerous uh, um, development if that, in fact, happens. I think if he if he's allowed to run, is the the polls and the sentiment within the Republican Party seem to suggest that he uh, has a, a great shot at being the Republican nominee? And if he runs, as the polls also seem to indicate, if Joe Biden decides to run again, which I don't believe, right? Uh, I don't either. The real strong possibility he will win. It's just crazy to think. But I, I have to agree with that analysis. I think that's that's what we're looking at, at least right now. Okay, well, uh, uh, Jamu Baraka, thank you so much for joining us. Jamu is the former U.S. vice presidential nominee of the Green Party, and he's the national organizer for Black Alliance for Peace. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're going to take a break and come back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou, and we are going to—we've got two stories. They might not seem connected, but I think there's a, a thematic hook mm-hmm. we can hang both of them on that has to do with— uh, Privacy, security, and the theater of privacy and security. And so joining us for these two stories, one of which we mentioned yesterday, is Q. Anthony Omeni. He's a Toronto-based writer, and he's co-host of the Unredacted podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. So uh, John and I talked about this story out of Edmonton, Canada yesterday, but I wanted to get into it more because I find it very alarming. Um, Police in Edmonton, Canada, announced this week that they had used DNA phenotyping for the first time to create a picture of a suspect who is wanted in connection with a 2019 assault. Uh, And the story, you know, the Edmonton police in their press release say they took DNA from the investigation. They're not clear exactly where this DNA came from and contracted with a Virginia company to create an image of this person who they want to speak with. Uh, And I suspect that some people will look at this and think this is an incredible advance. It's so much better than relying on witness sketches or witness recollections. Uh, I think there's reason to be concerned, and I I wonder what you make of this development. Yeah, this is really not all that surprising coming from Edmonton police. Mm. Uh, yeah, they've been like the subject of like numerous complaints from uh, black community members uh, in um, the last like four or five years uh, for racial pro- everything from racial profiling to uh, aggression, brutality, etc. The issue with uh, the issue with Edmonton is that it's a uh, a, a rapidly uh, diversifying city. So Alberta, for a, you know quite a, a long time in its existence. Was a a fairly like uh, it, it was a very white community, but it was also heavily segregated. As a matter of fact, they had like an active KKK chapter uh, in the province, one of like Canada's few KKK chapters. Um, and the history of white supremacy in in Edmonton is like well documented. Uh, you can even like go to the Edmonton libraries uh, mm. and, and get like you know old, old documents, archives, microfiches um, attesting to you know white supremacist organizations that sprung up in the area. Uh, as a matter of fact, like when many Black Americans were fleeing Jim Crow, uh, and they were ending up in the prairies, um, Edmonton being one city among them. Uh, you know, people were writing letters to the editor of, of uh, local newspapers, uh, basically saying that, uh, you know, well, black people are really not all that acclimated to cold weather, so we, uh, Jack Frost can accomplish what Jim Crow could. What? Wow. <laughs> yeah. God. Uh, Edmonton's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, it's got a fairly trash history. Um, well, also the funny thing too is that uh, the uh, the prime minister at the time, uh, Wilfred Laurier, um, his health minister, who was actually sending envoys down to the United States and arguing, not arguing, but like in in, in treating Black Americans uh, and also like asking for meetings with, you know, like uh, uh, abolitionists and civil rights figures at that time, uh, and saying, well, if all of your if all of your Black people, uh, leaders of the community, people, and you know, people who are coming to Canada were like. You know, they were they were trades professionals. They were also like doctors, engineers, et cetera. It's like, well, if all of these people are coming to Canada, I mean, who's going to stay back here and fight for your rights? You you could really use them in your country better than we could use them in ours, right? Wow! But Canada's nice. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bit so. 
the I, the reason that we're talking about this is because, of course, the this computer generated image is the the DNA. The suspect they're looking for is a black man, uh, and it just one of the reasons why this is so concerning is because that it. I don't know. The image is just a. They they had to pick an age, so they give him an average age. They have to pick a BMI, so they give him the average BMI, and you just create this this image that could be so many people if what you want to do is is racially profile an entire population. You know. Well, again, like last last listen, you you asked the historian onto your show, so you get what you get. Yes. <laughs> you know, you know, one of one of uh, Edmonton's like most powerful uh, labor activists in history. Who was also a mayor um, of Edmonton, Alberta? Uh, that would be uh, Dan Not. You know, he he was uh, heavily um, associated with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, I mean, a lot a lot of like uh, you know newspapers and like uh, 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 like articles about him from the time say that he had associations, but like he was he was like the uh, in, in, unofficial leader of the KKK in Edmonton, right? So he was. So, like that's that's the history of the province. Now, when it comes to the police, um, they've, yeah, because they've had many people move out to uh, that province due to like the oil boom, especially like in the early two thousands, and also like it, it sort of coincided with a uh, you know like immigration wave, uh, like the, the the last like the tail end of the immigration wave from Somalia. So, there are many people who are like of Somali background, but also like of like a Central West African background, of Caribbean background. And so it's become a bit of a, uh, I don't know, like a, what Albertans see as like a liberal melting pot. Mm-hmm. And many of them don't like it. And they're, they're, you know, their institutions really don't like it, the police being among them. Now, the issue is like the idea of uh, trying to create some kind of a racial physiognomy to, uh, you know, to, to determine where crime is coming from and also like who to look out for. That's not, that's nothing new. I mean, this is like, this has been demonstrated in policing and also like slave catching throughout history. What was amazing about this one was like handing off this information to a third party company. So it's one thing to get like a DNA profile of a suspect and say, well, you know, the person is very likely of African ancestry. Um, but that's pretty much all of the information that you can determine mm-hmm. So from there, by, by, you know, by, by looking at say like the Apple groups and saying, well, this is uh, probably a suspect. The, the, the DNA that they left behind uh, would indicate that they are uh, African ancestry. Then, from there, you're basically just doing a guessing game. So you can say, like, okay, well, the eye color is very likely to be brown, closer to black. It probably isn't blue. It probably isn't green. But that's because there just aren't very many black people with blue and green eyes. You can also like make a determination about the uh, the hair color, right? Again, like most. Black people's hair color is generally black. I'm, I mean, I'm like silver foxes like myself, which is <laughs> black, right? Mm. When you do things like start to like try to determine facial features, try to like height and weight, we're not really sure. This is what the facial feature looks like. So they basically just like put, um, they just put like a bunch of words into that uh, that AI art program, Dolly. Yeah. But like, you know, uh, young black man, 25 years old. And, and like, their version of Dolly just, like, spit back an image. <laughs> okay, uh, you can't, from your DNA residue, determine height, weight. It's also not going to determine uh, things like, uh, you know, skin complexion. It's not going to determine m- facial features. None of this can be determined by this DNA evidence whatsoever. It's literally impossible. 
because all, most of that is determined by family ancestry and it's also determined by environmental factors. Whether or not, for example, you've like eaten well as a young child or if you were slightly malnourished as a young child, whether you lived in a warm environment or a cold environment, look at what was your diet like? What was your, your income levels? Were you uh, eating like uh, nutritious foods? Were you eating very healthy foods? Did you come from, like, I don't know, like a, a family of people who like to eat McDonald's for dinner? None of these things can you possibly determine. So you have no idea. It is, it is not possible to determine what this person's face looked like. And yet they released a profile sketch of the suspect based on, again, D, like DNA residue. Yeah. And now I would imagine, I don't know how um, widespread facial recognition technology is in Canada or in Edmonton in particular, but, you know, even even if it's not in use, you're just creating a scenario where you, you're giving uh, police uh, an excuse to bring in a whole bunch of people who look vaguely like this sketch. And if you do end up feeding it into some kind of facial recognition system, you are playing a game of telephone where you can just, you know, grab grab almost any black man off the street because, that, you know, we already know how flawed that that technology is uh, when it comes to identifying, I mean, identifying any faces, identifying non-white faces in particular. Uh, And then, you know, people, I think, would say, well, hey, yeah, but this is based on DNA. So if you get brought in and they take your DNA and you're not a match, it's fine. Why should you be upset about that? And so I I ask you, uh, why should people be upset about that? Well, because they released a they released a, a 3D image of Donald Glover before he grew the beard out. That's why. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I think we found our suspect. Why don't yeah. we like go go to Atlanta? Okay, go to Atlanta during filming and see what we can find. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But the, the funny, like the hilarious part was that the tweet where they you know they posted the picture of the this like composite image of the suspect or whatever. Uh, hidden tweets are like an absolute goldmine. They are a gem because anytime that any like, especially like large Twitter accounts start hiding tweets, like you'll find the best stuff in there. So like there were people that were posting the, uh, the scene from Thor love and thunder where, and sorry, this is like a huge geek reference. (laughs) Heimdall's son, Axel, uh, was able to like make his face visible to uh, to Thor to tell them like, hey, we've been kidnapped by Gore the God Butcher, and it was probably like the worst CGI that's ever been in any Marvel property. Mm-hmm. It's like you basically you've reproduced a meme, like you did Morbius to the the you did Morbius to the city of Edmonton and your tax paying constituents. It was like this is what your this is what your tax dollars are going towards. Yeah, yeah. They've actually, I just got uh, caught up because the Edmonton police have just released a statement on their use of this phenotyping uh, because I think they must have gotten a ton of criticism. And now they are going to remove the visuals that they provided with that release. They're going to review internal processes. They're going to uh, explore other means of finding justice. Yeah, I mean, I think I feel a little bit relieved that the backlash was apparently so swift. They did one earlier in the year, and I, I'm like, I'm not even kidding you. I'm not trying to be funny. It looked like John Boyega. Yes. Oh no. Oh no. I did think that face looked familiar, uh, but then you know, I I was torn as to whether why whether I should even admit that. But yeah, it just looks like it. You know, it's just you make a composite face, and it looks like you know a handful of people that you know personally, and half of the famous black men in the world. I mean, it. Yeah. 
it's it's a wild suspect. But the other thing is that, that I did want to get to is, you know, I don't think it is purely neutral to bring someone in, take their DNA and then clear them. Right. You're creating a dragnet for people who wouldn't otherwise have been intercepted by the system. You know, you're creating every possibility for uh, negative interactions between people and the police that didn't have to happen. It just seems like it, it opens up a can of worms for a process that, as you said, is just doesn't seem like has the capacity to actually be useful in finding in finding these uh, you know alleged criminals. Well, here's the thing. I wrote an article for the Globe and Mail uh, in December of last year, and I said that this is this is like the uh, the logical endpoint of what happens when the companies like uh, 23andMe and others, Ancestry.com, uh, make a like a, a really fun and uh, like family bonding activity out of handing over the most personal information that you could possibly have, which is like, like your DNA sequence. Okay. You, you hand yeah. information over to a private company and your, the benefit to you is that, well, you find out like what your family background is and so on and so on, possibly find like matches people that you might be related to who are famous, stuff like that. But the information is now in the hands of a private company, which can I mean, there's probably I mean, there's, there are terms of service that you signed on to. However, they can still either a unilaterally change those terms of service uh, or b simply just not follow them. So this company called GED Match um, was used <clears throat> was used uh, to uh, uh, to find the Golden State Killer a few years back, but that was because uh, police in California accessed that genealogy information and people that had provided their information to GED match to be able to find this killer. The people who provided that information did not provide the DNA to GED match for that purpose. And yet now their information is in the hands of police. As a matter of fact, um, at a, uh, a recent conference, uh, Orlando police were talking about how important it is that uh, police agencies are able to work with these uh, DNA uh, phenotyping companies because it's providing them a powerful level of access and information that they haven't had before. And this also happened in Canada as well. There's a firm called Parabanano Labs, right, which uh, allowed them to uh, find out that there was a, uh, a young woman who had been killed decades ago, way back in the, in the 1970s. Um, and they, what they were able to do is uh, find a potential killer and also rule out suspects. But the problem is, again, the people who provided the information to this company did not provide it for that purpose. And speaking to your dragnet point, in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, the police actually did create a literal dragnet, like an actual DSA or a DSA, a DNA dragnet. Uh, and the, the, the suspect that they were attempting to capture or apprehend was described as a black man. Oh, oh my gosh. It was all yeah. the information they had, just a black man. And what they did was they approached one by one 200 different black men that had not been suspected of any crime whatsoever, did not do any wrongdoing. What, they, what happened was that they had facial features and bodily features that resembled a composite sketch. Yeah. Suspect. And they had their cheeks swabbed for DNA. The RCMP in Canada, the, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is sort of our version of the FBI and also like in rural areas like, uh, you know, sheriff's, sheriff's departments, they don't have any rules on DNA collection. And oftentimes when you file for freedom of information requests, 
from organizations like the RCMP, but also the Canadian military, et cetera, it takes a long time to get this information back, and they don't always have to give you this information. So, yeah, it is, I think, uh, indicative of a rather frightening future that we're living into, where the police can just do whatever they want and drag people into contact with them. We already went through this in Toronto, where they had this process called carding, which is basically racial profiling with a paper trail. Yeah. Push people collect their information because they were trying to solve a crime, but then just hang on to that information. Yeah. And even though people hadn't done anything, the people that you are associated with could actually lose you security clearance at Pearson Airport, as happened to a friend of mine. Because she, her dad gave somebody a ride in her car to a funeral, and when her dad was carted, one of the people that was in the vehicle with him was, which, by the way, they didn't even identify them in the Freedom of Information request, said, oh, yeah, your dad had this person in the car, so therefore you could have some contacts in the drug trafficking community in Toronto, guilty of drug trafficking, but now she loses her security clearance and she can't work for the airline that she worked for. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it's outrageous. Um, all right. Do, do you want to switch gears here? Because we're running out of time. And I did want to talk about this other story that's been kicking around for a little while that relates to uh, the theater of security and privacy. Uh, and this is about U.S. tech giant Apple uh finding itself on the receiving end of finger wagging and warnings from the U.S. government over its plans to use in new iPhone 14s uh, that even Apple says will only be used, sold in China, Chinese chips. Uh, according to the register, Apple currently buys the chips that it needs for these phones from a couple of South Korean companies and one in Japan. Apple gets a bunch of other stuff from South Korea as well. So its supply chain is really dependent on South Korea, and it probably wants to branch out a little bit. But elements of the U.S. government, which include a bipartisan group of, of U.S. senators, are, uh, they want us to believe, very uh, concerned about the security threat of using Chinese-made chips in Apple products that are going to be produced for Chinese markets. Uh, and t I am a little bit skeptical. I think that it is pretty convenient to invoke national security when you want to keep certain competitors out of your market. Uh, and so I wonder what you, what you think of this uh, back and forth between the U.S. and Apple on whether it can use these Chinese-made chips. <laughs> okay, so... Okay, here's the, the funny thing about Marco Rubio. Like, uh, I, I don't mean to, like, switch gears on you, but I promise this, this has something to do with what we're talking about. All right. You, you know how there's the, uh, there's the ongoing narrative that there is a genocide happening against Uyghur people in Xinjiang? Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yep. So when, when people hear about uh, mosques being bulldozed, and the reason that uh, we, quote-unquote, know that mosques are being bulldozed is because aerial photographs of you know, satellite photographs of the area show that there were buildings that used to have minarets on them, and then now those same blocks, maybe the buildings no longer exist, or if they have been refurbished, they no longer have the minarets. Like they no longer have the dome on top. That doesn't <laughs> having a minaret on top of your building doesn't mean that it's a mosque. As a matter of fact, I was at my grandmother's house yesterday doing handyman stuff, and I myself am Muslim, so when I um. I'm in the area. If if I if I have to go to uh, to mosque for Juma, the 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 closest mosque to her house does not have a minaret on top. So basically, there's literally like hundreds and hundreds of people getting into this building to say their prayers. And according to people who do aerial photographs of Xinjiang, well, 
uh, there's no Muslims there. And the reason I bring this up is because all of that 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 uh, that BS narrative, which Americans just lap up so eagerly, oh, we love it, was pushed. That was pushed by Marco Rubio. The idea that Chinese people are enslaving Uyghurs and putting them to work in concentration camps, uh, making them pick cotton. Cotton, by the way, is harvested by machines and not by human hands. Use that shortcut because in, people, in Americans' minds, they think of cotton picking as something that's done by slave labor and by hand uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, yeah, yeah. So basically, that that was also Marco Rubio. Uh, the idea that uh, any sort of like re-education programs that they've gone into, vocational training, it's, uh, that they're trying to reduce the population uh, through introducing family planning and forced sterilization. Also Marco Rubio. Mm-hmm. It's not surprising that he has a hand in this narrative, too. And I, I will not be surprised if something comes up, like if Apple proceeds with the uh, the plan to, uh, to, to source their chips this way, then you're going to hear once again, because uh, much of the, uh, the silica industry um, in China uh, is uh, it's, uh, sourced in Xinjiang, but also like, the assembly of the products happens in Guangzhou. There is Uyghur labor in both cities. Mm-hmm. And having signed, a, having signed an agreement saying that uh, uh, Chinese companies that cannot prove that they are not using forced labor will be sanctioned and then removed from the supply chain. All of this is in service of essentially removing Uyghur workers from the supply chain. Mm-hmm. So uh, as to whether it's a convenient excuse to say this is due to national security, well, of course it is. It has nothing to do with national security. Yeah. What this has to do with is attempting to move an ethnic population in China, which historically has been hard done by. I don't think that we, anybody could really argue that. But that this ethnic population, there is a deliberate attempt on the part of the Department of State, on the part of Congress, and in the, on part of the executive in the United States to single-handedly remove Uyghur workers from the global supply chain. And what happens when you have millions of people who are underemployed, dispossessed, and pose a liability to any company that they work with, that, hey, listen, if we hire you, we might go out of business. Mm-hmm. What happens then when you do that? It's obvious, like, ethnic strife, and that's what America is attempting to stoke. And what they're doing now is using uh, this, this leverage, this human rights bargaining chip against companies like Apple to make absolutely sure that regardless of how expensive these phones end up becoming, regardless of whether... And they're able to meet their manufacturing obligations. Doesn't really matter. We need to destabilize this country ethnically. Uh, side story. I mean, the same thing happened. Uh, I was at my uh, mechanic shop to replace a tire. Found out that uh, the tire is manufactured in Russia. And the company that makes it has no clue, probably January or February of next year at best, uh, until they can retool factories to, con- to uh, manufacture this tire to make up for the shortfall. So people who have this tire and run a flat, simply cannot get it replaced. Same thing yep. with catalytic converters, because palladium uh, often passes hands through China or Russia or both. And there are people with cars in the shop for months because they cannot get new catalytic converters. Now there's an actual, if they're, like, they're so in demand that there has to be a chain of custody signed off for catalytic converters to make sure that they're not being stripped and bootlegged. And that's what we're being put through in, in service of this proxy war against Russia that none of us asked for, and to be perfectly honest, your average American, Canadian, or whoever probably could not care less about it.
Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a hell of a long game with regard to the Uyghur population in China, but it does also dovetail with our interesting flip-flop on uh, what exactly is the East Turkestan independence movement or whatever, uh, formerly terrorist, now, I guess, just fine. <laughs> now, our, now our pals. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely not national security is what I will uh, say. Uh, Anthony O'Many, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Where should our listeners go to find uh, Unredacted or any of the rest of your work? Sure. Yep. So if you go to Colin.com, you can find the Unredacted podcast with Sam Greenwald, as well as on Rumble.com. You can find uh, highlights from our episodes there as well. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll get in touch again soon. Thank you. All right, John, we got we got way too many headlines oh for my God. first seven minutes, but we're going to try. We're going to we're going to pack them in. You know, one of the things I wanted to mention when we started the show was yesterday in uh, central California, an Indian-American family was kidnapped. Mm. Uh, father, mother, eight month old daughter and uncle. And uh, the cops had no idea why these people were kidnapped. Uh, they were seen on CCTV being led away in flex cuffs and, um, and their bodies were found in a burning vehicle. Yeah. Uh, they caught the guy immediately. He was trying to use their ATM, uh, card. Uh, he looks like he has spent the better part of his life in prison, tattoos all over his neck and his head and stuff like that. But he won't say why he killed these poor people. And anybody that kills an eight month old, you know, child. It has to have something seriously wrong in his yeah, head. Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to raise. Well, thank you, John. Now, <laughs> okay, what to else? dovetail with the news of yes. the serial killer in Stockton. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Another one: uh, two two boats uh, sank off the coast of uh, of Greece, mm-hmm. killing dozens of migrants. Dozens, mostly women. Uh, the early reports are they were. Um, they were probably coming from Turkey. They're, they're all, they all appear to be West Africans. And um, most of the bodies, almost all the bodies, all but one that have been recovered have been women. You know, the Greeks and others are going to have to figure out a policy because what they're doing now is not working. No, no. Um, a story that I'm pretty sure we will talk more about tomorrow is what exactly is going on with OPEC and oil prices. Uh, it so it's it's not just this recommendation that production be cut next month uh, by a million barrels a day. That was it, a million barrels, two, two million barrels two million. a day. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also some news that's just come out in the last hour to about uh, prices, and it looks like Saudi Arabia has uh, decided to leave prices for Asian customers relatively unchanged. Uh, it has lowered prices for European customers. For the American market, got to pay a little more. Jerks. Increased it by 20 cents a barrel, I think. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at these uh, these stories right now. It, it, I think it had been kind of expected uh, that it might jack up prices for Asia. If you're, you know, mm-hmm. cutting production, you're trying to make some money. It makes right. sense that those two things would go together, I guess. Um, but according to Bloomberg, it, it defied expectations uh, to keep those unchanged. Um, but yeah, not, not so for everybody else. No. Yeah, I thought that was pretty wild. Did we also talk about the way the investigation is unfolding for the Nord Stream pipeline explosion? Uh, no, we didn't have a chance. We, we wanted to raise that with Aaron Good, but we ran out of time. What's going on there, John? What's, what's so unusual about that? Well, the unusual thing is that the Swedish government and the Danish government 
have forbidden the Russian government from from taking part in the investigation into what happened to their pipeline, the Russians' pipeline. Yeah. Uh, you know, I am happy to see so many mainstream commentators saying, you know, it appears that the Americans may have done this. Mm-hmm. Because to me, it's crystal clear that we did it. Crystal clear. It's just a, it's a straighter line. Yes. It's a much straighter line than all of uh, all of the countries who we consider our enemies are willing to go to any lengths and spend any amount of money to frame us right. for doing things that exactly. we have said we wanted to do explicitly. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a little bit unusual. We didn't get a chance to talk about Jim Sciuto either. <laughs> Poor guy. What happened to him? <laughs> so he was he was in Ukraine uh, covering the the war for CNN. CNN apparently has a policy where you have to fly directly from Warsaw to New York when you leave Ukraine. He elected to not do that. Mm-hmm. So he and a producer flew instead to Amsterdam. We're not being told what he was doing in Amsterdam, but we can all we can all, you know, take a wild guess. Mm-hmm. Um, while he was in Amsterdam, he fell uh, and seriously injured himself. It, they didn't come out and say that he hit his head, but that's the way the New York Post described it. He's since recovered from this terrible life threatening fall, but he's still suspended. From CNN. All CNN is saying is that he has a personal problem he needs to deal with. <laughs> CNN's got a few personal problems uh, that people are going to need to deal with over the next couple of months. I'll say. Yeah. And then the only other thing we have, and we're out of time, is Melinda Gates saying, oh, my God, I'm so glad that I'm divorced from Bill Gates. Yeah, I'm a little <laughs> I think uh, she's probably coming out and talking about that divorce because she doesn't want to talk. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm mixing no, up her uh, and Mackenzie Scott. Right. Yeah. Oh, OK. All right. right. So Melinda Gates wants to come out and make the rounds and uh, slag on her ex. That's fine. Right. I don't. Yeah. I don't who mind. cares? Yeah, sure. Whatever. Go ahead, Melinda. That's, we all do that. <laughs> Some of us more than others, Sean. <laughs> I guess we'll leave it there. I want to say thanks to all of our guests and to the producers and engineers who make the show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>